and faculty treated my kids like they were their own. Shiloh is a, is a place where, you know, your kids can come and be themselves. The staff is very open to things that the parents have to say. To enroll your child in Shiloh's Early Learning Academy, call 225-343-4734. Is God real? The stories in the Bible true? I need answers. Welcome to A Closer Look with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to spend the next hour with us as we delve into the study of God's Word. We can't do what we don't know. Here at Shiloh, we want to spend time studying the Word so that we can rightly apply the Word to our daily living and make a difference in our community and in our world for Jesus Christ. Won't you join us now? for a closer look into God's Word. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 10. And I don't know if this is good news for some of you or bad news for some of you. I don't know if we're going to be here the whole hour uh, today. Uh, just depends on how things go. Uh, this is part two of a three-part section dealing with Samuel. Uh, having to do with Saul's elevation, Saul uh, being called to become the king of Israel. Last week we looked uh, at chapter 9, uh, almost in its entirety, if not in its entirety, uh, and uh, this week we're going to look at the first nine verses of chapter 10. This section deals primarily to the process that God uses to inform Saul that he's going to be the king and to transform Saul for the role that he is to now play. Re recalling from last time that we were together, Saul did not know uh, what was going to happen to him. He did not even know who Samuel was. Uh, we, we come to find out that uh, uh, through a series of events that we have to say God ordained and caused to happen, uh, Saul's father had donkeys to leave the, the, the ranch, uh, the, the, the dwelling where they were, and uh, Saul's father sends him and a servant out looking for the donkey. As it turns out, uh, the search goes on for several days and leads Saul and his servant into the area where Samuel is dwelling. Uh, and uh, after he gets close to Samuel, he actually asks Samuel, uh, can you tell me if the seer lives here? And Samuel says, I am the seer. I am the one that uh, you, you are looking for. Uh, he says, well, uh, we need some help in trying to find these donkeys. Samuel says, you ain't got to worry about the donkeys. The donkeys have already been taken care of. I have something else for you. I have something bigger for you. He ushers Saul and his servant into a room where there are some 30 guests, uh, people of high prominence, elders of the various tribes of Israel present. 
and uh, he sits Saul in the seat of honor, in the place of honor, we, we would presume at the head of the table. And he tells him uh, that you are the one uh, that has been chosen in order to do God's work, and that is to serve as king of Israel. Saul does what, what, what he should do. He, he says, no, you can't be talking about me. There, there are others who are far uh, more important and who, and who come from larger tribes who uh, you could use. Uh, he, he has the appropriate amount of humility that he should have under these circumstances. But as chapter 9 ends, after he has him spend the night, stay there, uh, he says, the next morning, uh, I'll usher you out of town. And as he's ushering him out of town, headed back home, he tells the servant to go on ahead because he says he has something that he needs to talk to him about uh, privately. And that's where chapter 10 begins. You ready? Y'all mighty quiet. Is it, is it cold? All right. Okay. Then Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, do you see what this means? God has anointed you prince over his people. This sign will confirm God's anointing of you as prince over his inheritance. After you leave me today, as you get closer to your home country of Benjamin, you'll meet two men near Rachel's tomb. They'll say the donkeys you went to look for are found. Your father has forgotten about the donkeys and is worried about you, wringing his hands quite beside himself. Leaving there, you'll arrive at the Oak of Tabor. There, you'll meet three men going up to worship God at Bethel. One will be carrying three young goats, another carrying three sacks of bread, and the third, a jug of wine. They'll say, hello, how are you? And offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept. Next, you'll come to Gibeah of God, where there's a Philistine garrison. As you approach the town, you'll run into a bunch of prophets coming down from the shrine playing harps and tambourines, flutes and drums, and they'll be prophesying. Before you know it, the Spirit of God will come on you, and you'll be prophesying right along with them, and you'll be transformed. You'll be a new person. When these confirming signs are accomplished, you'll know that you're ready. Whatever job you're given to do, do it. God is with you. All right, a couple of things that we want uh, to lift up from these verses before we get to the last two. Let's start with the fact that privately, Samuel takes the flask of oil and anoints Saul's head, kisses him, and informs him that God has indeed chosen him to be ruler over all of Israel. The oil here is very important. The oil has a special meaning. It showed that God's spirit was upon Saul. Now, it's important that we draw a distinction 
between the work of the Holy Spirit post-Pentecost, post-resurrection, and post the outpouring that takes place in Acts chapter 2 and the work of the Holy Spirit pre-Pentecost, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. The work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is invasive. It is private. It is where the Holy Spirit comes upon a person or a group in order to separate them for God's special task. You and I are far more familiar with the pervasive work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to all believers. Everyone who's a believer in Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit. That was not the case at this time. For the Holy Spirit to be upon someone was a very, very, very special and unique thing. And so the flowing of the oil symbolized that God's spirit was upon Saul. Contrast that with what happens when Samuel goes looking for David. God doesn't tell him who he's going to look for. And, and, and Samuel goes to uh, Jesse's house and has all of his sons line up from the oldest to what he thought was the youngest. And he went to pour the oil, but the oil would not flow upon any of them until David was brought in. That's the power, that's what's meant to be signified, to be symbolized by the presence of the oil. The oil symbolizes that God's spirit was upon him. Much like water baptism, I'm, I'm trying to give you something that you can uh, relate to. Much like water baptism is intended to symbolize what has already taken place in the life of the believer. The flowing of the oil was intended to symbolize the giving of the Holy Spirit from God to Saul. When, 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 when someone comes forward and says that they want to be baptized, there's nothing special that happens in the water. What happens in the water is the result of what happened when you came forward and said that you confess Christ as your personal Savior. In the same way, the, the flowing of the oil was not the power. The flowing of the oil was the symbol of the power. We already know that, 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 that God has chosen Saul. How do we know? Because God told Samuel the day before, that's the one. He's going to show up, and when he shows up, you're going to know that he is the one. All that has already taken place is indicative of the fact that God has chosen Samuel. So I don't want anybody to get hung up in the oil as anything other than a symbol of what God has already done. Now, here's the key. Saul needed the Holy Spirit in order to rule as Israel's king. It is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit that sets Saul apart. Not just sets him apart from his fellow Israelites, but sets him apart from the kings of the other nations. Remember how the folk came and said to Samuel, we want a king like everybody else? God says, essentially, I'm going to give you a king, but he ain't going to be like everybody else. There's going to be something different about this king, and the difference is this. He is going to have my presence with him, and my presence means different things. 
kings of other nations rule by their own power. But the king of Israel was to rule by God's power. God had established his covenant relationship with Israel's people, and they belonged to him. Israel was God's inheritance. Israel was God's permanent possession. And Saul could only rule Israel because God permitted it. And as you'll come to see, the permission didn't last very long. You only go a couple more chapters before permission was revoked. But his rule was to be on God's behalf, meaning that whatever Saul may do, Israel would still belong to God and not to Saul. Here's, here's the import for us. In our service to Christ and to his church, the presence and the potency of the Holy Spirit is indispensable. I'm talking about the church now. I ain't talking about kings. Ain't, ain't no kings in here. Amen. I'm talking about disciples of Christ. In our service to Christ and to his church, it is the presence and the potency of the Holy Spirit that is indispensable. Why? Because we belong to God. We do not belong to ourselves. We do not belong to each other. We belong to God. And if God is the owner, then the owner sets the agenda for our lives. Now, if you don't believe that God is the owner, then you're going to go out and do what you want to do. And that's how you end up getting in trouble. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I'm grown. I can do whatever I want to do. That's what gets you into trouble. By the way, that's what gets churches into trouble. You know, I, 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 I'm not just a Christian. I'm a Baptist Christian. I, I love the Baptist church. But part of what gets Baptists into trouble is this idea that we can do whatever we want. This whole idea of autonomy within the local church, we carry it too far. We carry autonomy to the place where we feel like we can do anything that comes to our mind. We can act any kind of way we want. There's no episcopacy over us. There's no hierarchy over us that can tell us anything about what we do. What, what we do as a local congregation is nobody's business but ours. I beg to differ. And I've been one of those who said that. I beg to differ. You can be called in. You can be reined in. Because you don't belong to you. You belong to Jesus Christ. And while as a matter of function, God allows us the liberality to determine our own organizational structure within ourselves, there are some things that are not up for discussion. 
You, you might be able to determine whether or not you have this ministry or that ministry, but you can't determine whether or not you're going to love. That's, that, 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 that's without discussion. You can't decide that you ain't going to forgive and call yourself a Christian. You can't decide that you're going to be uh, completely lacking in compassion and concern for your fellow man and call yourself a Christian. Those things are not under your autonomy. We belong to God. Don't belong to ourselves. Don't belong to each other. She mine. He mine. No. You belong to him. He sets the agenda. So that no matter what anybody else says or does. Understand, Saul does not belong to Samuel. Samuel is the prophet. Samuel is the judge. Samuel is the facilitator by which God's word is, is given to Saul. But Samuel ain't in charge of nothing. Samuel only does what God tells him to do. Samuel operates as God leads him to operate. And Saul needed Samuel in order to help give him proper instruction and direction. The local church does not operate in and of itself. The local church operates according to the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. And when we recognize who is really in charge, we do things differently than thinking that we're the ones who are in charge. For our service to Christ to be relevant, meaningful, and purposeful, we must operate within the presence and the potency of the Holy Spirit. So, first thing that I want you to see is that Samuel anoints him, he kisses him, he tells him that you are going to be Israel's king. Samuel's words and his anointing make it very clear that he has been selected. And then Samuel prophesies regarding the events that will happen within the next few hours. There are three things that happen. First, he says that on the road to Rachel's tomb, they will meet two men who will confirm that the lost donkeys that brought him that way in the first place have been found. And now Saul's father is worried not about the donkeys, but about Saul and the servant. That's important because what it tells Saul is that the word of God confirms itself. If you remember in chapter 9, the day before, when, when, when they come to Samuel looking for the seer, they said, well, you know, we, we have a concern that we want to bring before you. And before they can even tell him what the concern was, he says, them donkeys y'all were looking for, they're fine. They've already been found, and they're already headed back home. You don't have to worry about them anymore. And so here for the second time, he tells them that you're going to meet somebody. 
and they're going to confirm what I have already told you. The donkeys are already back home, and your father is now concerned about you. God's word confirms itself. Turn in your Bibles for just a second to Isaiah chapter 42. Key verse is verse 9, but to keep it in its context, I'm going to start with verse 5. God's message, the God who created the cosmos, stretched out the skies, laid out the earth, and all that grows from it, who breathes life into earth's people, makes them alive with his own life. I am God. I have called you to live right and well. I have taken responsibility for you, kept you safe. I have set you among my people to bind them to me and provided you as a lighthouse to the nations to make a start at bringing people into the open, into light, opening blind eyes, releasing prisoners from dungeons, emptying the dark prisons. I am God. That's my name. I don't franchise my glory. Don't endorse the no God idols. Take note. This is what I wanted to get to. The earlier predictions of judgment have been fulfilled. I'm announcing the new salvation work before it bursts on the scene. I'm telling you about it. The earlier predictions of judgment have been fulfilled. What I said, I have already done. I say quite a lot that the word of God is remarkably redundant. You get the same message over and over and over again. There is reassurance in that. There is comfort in that. If God said it, it will come to pass. So then, what is our job in the meantime? Your job in the meantime is to stand in faith until it happens. He's taken too long. He may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. Part of our problem is that we, we get impatient. That, that we will come to see will be Saul's problem. He gets to be impatient, and impatience will turn out to be his downfall. But the first thing that, that Samuel says is going to happen. He says, I'm sending you home. I've already anointed you with oil. But let me give you some signs to make sure that you know that what I've said is really true. First thing you're going to do is you're going to run into somebody. They're going to tell you that the donkey's already at home. Now, I know I told you that yesterday. But the donkey's already at home. And they're going to confirm that for you. It's a reminder that God's word is true. What's the second thing that happens? When they reach the Oak of Tabor, they are encountered by three men who are going up to worship God at Bethel. One will have three goats. One will have three loaves of bread. The third will have a jug of wine. They will not only greet Saul and his servant, they will give him two of the three loaves which they have. And they are, Saul and his servant are to take the loaves. The bread will serve as their provision for the rest of the way home. If you go back to chapter 9, you will see that they were three days out from home 
when they ran into Samuel. Now they're being given provision that will get them back home. If each one of them has a loaf of bread, and if they ain't too greedy, they ought to be able to make it back home with enough bread for each one of them. The point is this. God makes provision for his servants. There is never a need to worry about whether or not God will take care of us. It is his assurance that he will. Our problem with this, I don't think most of us have a problem with the fact that God will take care of us. You've lived long enough now to where you know that. Our problem is that we want God to take care of us a certain kind of way. We don't want bread. We want filet mignon. We, 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 we don't want the staples. We want the luxuries. Well, the world tells us that, that, that we, we ought to have the luxuries. You've lived long enough. You deserve all them commercials on TV. You deserve it. You, you, you don't need a car. You need an automobile. Y'all know there's a difference between a car and an automobile. And, 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 and we, we buy into the belief that we deserve the finer things of life. The promise from God has never been that you will have the finest of everything. The promise of God is that he will supply for all of your needs. And that ought to be enough. That ought to, that ought to satisfy us. Somebody is dissatisfied because we didn't get what we wanted. And so we're ungrateful for what we got. Let me turn you back to James. Y'all know brother James, right? James chapter four. Starting with verse 1, where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. You lust for what you don't have and are willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours, and you will risk violence to get your hands on it. You wouldn't think of just asking God for it, would you? And why not? Because you know you'd be asking for what you have no right to. You're spoiled children, each wanting your own way. I understand that we live 
in a capitalist society. I understand what capitalism symbolizes. I understand what it means to be a success and to be seen as a success in the eyes of your brothers and sisters. But I also understand that the promise of God has never been filet mignon. It has never been split-level houses. The promise of God is that when you've used the last meal in this barrel and you've made your cake, go to sleep, and when you wake up in the morning, there's going to be more meal in the barrel. You ain't got to worry about gathering up all the manna that you can. Just gather up what you need to eat. And when you wake up in the morning, there's going to be more manna out there. I, I, I say again and again, God's word confirms itself. And part of God's word is God wants you to learn. God wants us to learn how to rely on him as the blesser and not get so caught up in the blessing. Part of the reason why we, 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 we can't let go is because we think that the blessing is just, it's everything. And it really is not. You've been without before, haven't you? You, you, you've known what it is to be without before. Now, I ain't crazy and neither are you. You ain't just looking to be without. But our faith is that when we have nothing, God will make something out of nothing. Next, a, 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 after you run across the first set of folk, you're going to run across some folk who are going to give you some bread. I find it interesting. He told them they're going to give them the bread. He ain't say nothing about it. They were going to give them the wine. But, but, but he gave them bread to provide for their need. Now, the third sign is the most important one. The third sign is when you come to Gibeah of God, there you're going to prophesy with the other prophets that are there. Gibeah of God was a place where a Philistine garrison was stationed. And yet it was here that the third sign takes place. The third sign is publicly witnessed. And that is Saul and his servant are going to come into the presence of these prophets and they are going to start to prophesy. And before you know it, you're going to be prophesying with them. Samuel makes it clear that what happens at Gibeah of God or the hill of God, depending upon which translation you're reading, is not normal. It is supernatural. It is divine. It is above and beyond. The Spirit of God comes upon Saul and he prophesies along with those who are already known to be prophets. This is a public demonstration 
that God has empowered Saul to serve as both judge and king of the nation. The change in Saul becomes proverbial so that even those who do not witness the sign hear about it. Y'all know how we gossip, right? Child, you should have been there yesterday. Prophets came down and, and they started prophesying and then Saul started prophesying right along with the other prophets. Even though Gibeah was Saul's home, Gibeah was not considered to be a holy place. I'm making a point here. God guided the group of prophets there anyway. And their prophesying in this place at this time was for a special purpose. And that special purpose is this. Even though you are in enemy territory, God is still in charge. You're going to come upon Gibeah of God, and there's a Philistine outpost in the area. Philistia represents the enemy. There's an outpost there. But Samuel calls the town Gibeah of God. Do you know that there is no place where God ain't in charge? You know, we, we have this tendency to think of God as being only in certain places. God is at the church house, but God ain't at the club. Social club, nightclub, you fill in whatever kind of club you want. God, God is, is, is in my house, but God ain't in the person who I don't like. God ain't in their house. God is with me, but God ain't with these other people. There is no place where God is not except where God has chosen to absent himself. Now, let's be clear. There is a place where God ain't. It's called hell. Any place where God is not is hell. The club is not hell. Amen. The club is not hell. Your, your enemy's house is not hell. God can act out of any situation except those situations where he has chosen not to act. There is a place where God is not. But other than that, God is in all places. Yes, sir. The activity of God must never be relegated to safe spaces. What does that mean? I, I, I put that sentence in there, and, and then I say somebody's going to ask me. You know, when I first started preaching, uh, uh, I lived with my pastor. We lived in the same house. He was my daddy. <laughs> Whenever I would write a sermon, I would give it to him, and he would read it. And he had a red pen <laughs> that he would tear the whole thing 
up with it. And, and, and at some point, he'd get down to a place and he'd say, what does that mean? You, you put that sentence there. What is it? And if I couldn't tell him what it meant, what you got it in there for? And he would strike it out. And it taught me a lesson. Don't say something if you can't back up what it is that you're saying. So I put in your Bible study, when you get your notes, it's going to say the work, the activity of God, the movement of God's people must never be relegated to safe spaces. And you ought to be asking me, what's a safe space? Y'all think that this is a safe space. It's okay to say amen in here. It's okay to say praise the Lord, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. In here, we, we don't feel like anybody is going to push back on us in here. If, if, if somebody gets happy, all we're going to say is they got happy. We, we, we're not going to do it. But, but there are other spaces where we are afraid to allow the liberty of the Holy Spirit to move and act in our lives, where we mute ourselves. We harness ourselves. We rein ourselves in. We don't want to look too holy. And yet I've learned at this age, ain't no such thing as looking too holy. We, we, we should not be looking for safe spaces only. The activity of God needs to be everywhere. The activity of God needs to be in Washington, D.C., on the floor of the United States Congress and in the Oval Office. The activity of God, that's not a safe space, especially for people of a different kind of hue. It's not a safe space. The activity of God is called for at the Metro Council. Today is Wednesday. They're going to have their meeting. There's some ugly stuff that happens in Metro Council. I mean, the activity of the Lord needs to be there. That's not a safe space. The activity of the Lord needs to be in boardrooms where money is being disseminated on behalf of powerful people to maintain their power and maintain their influence over the rest of us. Those are not safe spaces, but that's where the activity of the Lord is needed. And so we should not be afraid to go into places where the enemy has set up his camp. The Philistines have a camp at Gibeah, but don't worry about it because I got folk in Gibeah too. And when you get to Gibeah, my folk are going to come down and they're going to start dancing and they're going to start singing and they're going to start prophesying. And before you know it, something's going to come all over you, boy. And you're going to get wrapped up in it and you're going to get tied up in it and you're going to get tangled up in it and you're going to be prophesying too in the place where the enemy camp is. Aren't you tired of the enemy camp always having the advantage? It is incumbent upon God's people to speak God's truth. 
wherever we are. I trust in God wherever I may be. Out on the land or on the rolling sea. For come what may, from day to day, my heavenly Father watches over me. It is important that God's people not allow themselves to be relegated to just the safe spaces. God moves wherever and whenever his activity is needed. And that does not mean that it's going to be welcomed with open arms. And you have to be prepared for that. When Jesus sends out his disciples on, on, on their missionary journey, he tells them, you're going to go to some places where you're not going to be welcome. Shake the dust from your feet and move on to the next place. But what you can't do is just be quiet. And sometimes you got to speak to those who claim to be your brothers and sisters. And they ain't. Did you all see that despicable display in the Oval Office the other day? All, 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 all them paragons of Christian virtue wrapped around the president and endorsing an agenda that is designed to hurt and injure and maim people and to say that God supports what the president is doing. Now, let me tell you something. I don't know who was in the room, but I know that whoever was in the room represented some of the folk who reside in this community, who serve at churches in this community. And I get, y'all get mad when I call their names, so I won't call their names. But you know who they are. Some of them got huge crosses right on the highway. They give you a hint of who I'm talking about. They might not have been in the room, but trust me, they were represented by those that were in the room. And sometimes the space that looks safe safe. Don't look for people to always be happy to see you. They're not. One of the things that I appreciate about some folk is that some folk don't change the way that they act because a certain kind of crowd is in the room. Because at least I know, okay, they that way with everybody. If you mean, you just mean with everybody. If you're hard-nosed, you're just hard-nosed with everybody. We're looking for folk to like us. Folk ain't going to like you. You, you, you ought to get tired of, of waiting for folk to like you. One of the things I'm tired of is having to explain my, myself to folk. 
Don't you understand? No. They don't understand. And they ain't gonna understand. And I'm tired of trying to explain it to you. All right, you don't understand, that's fine. I know who you are, and I know what you are. What did you just say, Brother Burns? You're going to know by their actions? I know who you are, and I know what you are. And so I ain't got to worry about it anymore. But you're not going to get me to shut up. Simply because what I'm saying is unpopular to you. The sovereignty of God is such that when he moves, you have to move with him. Our authority doesn't come from us. Our authority comes from the Christ who saved us, from the Christ who called us. And so when Christ says, go, I ain't got no choice but to go. When Christ says, speak, I ain't got no choice but to speak. And if I have to take a poll to determine what the content of my speech is, then it ain't worth listening to in the first place. God moves in places that are not safe. You're going to end up in Gibeah and there's a Philistine outpost. The enemy outpost is in Gibeah. Don't you worry about that. I've got folk in Gibeah too. And they're going to come down and they're going to start to prophesy. And before you know it, you're going to be prophesying as well. And this will be the proof that you need to let you know that God is with you. I told you y'all were going to get out early. I might not have been telling the truth on that. Because <laughs> I still got two more verses to cover. Verse 8. Now go down to Gilgal, and I will follow. I'll come down and join you in worship by sacrificing burnt offerings and peace offerings. Wait seven days. Then I'll come and tell you what to do next. A literal translation of verse 8 is that God would test Saul at Gilgal. And you need to know, even though that's jumping ahead, we're going to get there. You need to know that Saul failed the test. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. Let's start with verse 3. We're going down to verse 14. Jonathan attacked and killed the Philistine governor stationed at Geba, Gibeah. When the Philistines heard the news, they raised the alarm. The Hebrews are in revolt. Saul ordered the reveille trumpets blown throughout the land. The word went out all over Israel. Saul has killed the Philistine governor, drawn first blood. The Philistines are stirred up and mad as hornets. Summoned, the army came to Saul at Gilgal. 
The Philistines rallied their forces to fight Israel, three companies of chariots, six companies of cavalry, and so many infantry they looked like sand on the seashore. They went up into the hills and set up camp at Michmash, east of Beth Avon. When the Israelites saw that they were way outnumbered and in deep trouble, they ran for cover, hiding in caves and pits, ravines and brambles and cisterns, wherever. They retreated across the Jordan River, refugees fleeing to the country of Gad and Gilead. But Saul held his ground in Gilgal, his soldiers still with him, but scared to death. He waited seven days. The time set by Samuel. Samuel failed to show up at Gilgal, and the soldiers were slipping away right and left. Here's the key. So Saul took charge. Bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. He went ahead and sacrificed the burnt offering. No sooner had he done it than Samuel showed up. Saul greeted him. Samuel said, what on earth are you doing? If I wasn't in the church, I'd say it a different way. <laughs> what on earth are you doing? Saul answered, when I saw I was losing my army from under me and that you hadn't come when you said you would and that the Philistines were poised at Michmash, I said, the Philistines are about to come down on me in Gilgal and I haven't yet come before God asking for his help. So I took things into my own hands and sacrificed the burnt offering. That was a fool thing to do. Samuel said to Saul, if you had kept the appointment that your God commanded, by now God would have set a firm and lasting foundation under your kingly rule over Israel. As it is, your kingly rule is already falling to pieces. God is out looking for your replacement right now. This time he'll do the choosing. When he finds him, he'll appoint him leader of his people. And because, and all because you didn't keep your appointment with God. Our anointing, our call by God can never be permitted to serve as a substitute for obedience. Faith is fortified by obedience, particularly when we obey in the face of opposition. Saul's problem was not that he didn't have his heart in the right place. Saul's problem was that he didn't wait on God. That's an important lesson for us because it's not always that our hearts are in the wrong place. I don't believe that everybody is just evil incarnate. I do believe that sometimes we act in ways where we take authority back from God to ourselves. And whenever that happens, it gets us into trouble. When you say that Jesus is my Savior and my Lord, please understand what it is that you're saying. 
He's your Savior because he died at Calvary and rose on that Sunday morning. But he is your Lord because you have surrendered your will over to him. Now, he is always your Savior because you can't be saved any other way. But he's not always your Lord. And you know when he's not your Lord, when you tell him, that's all right, I got it. I know I, I know I put it in your hands, but as we said earlier, you're taking too long. So I'm going to handle it my own way. The worst thing that's said here in, 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 in 1 Samuel 13 is Saul took things into his own hands. And before you get too mad with Saul, ask yourself in the privacy of your own heart, what is it that I have taken out of the Lord's hands and I have put back into my hands? The answer should be nothing, to, just to help you pass the test. The answer should be nothing. But if there is something that you have taken back, I urge you. Give it back to him as quick as you can. Because if you don't, that thing is going to mess you up. Saul failed the test because he took things back into his own hands. And we need to be reminded that there is nothing that God does. Remember, he has been anointed with oil. Remember, he has prophesied with the other prophets. None of that takes the place of being obedient to the word of God. Verse 9, Saul turned and left Samuel. At that very moment, God transformed him, made him a new person, and all the confirming signs took place the same day. Samuel's reprimand for Saul would be reserved for another day. Chapter 13 is where you get the reprimand. But we in chapter 10. On this day, preach Sunday, this is the day that the Lord has made. On this day, God moved powerfully and unmistakably into Saul's life, and Israel was one step closer to having what they demanded because God showed favor in Saul's life. So we know it didn't end well for Saul. Before it was over, Saul lost his mind. Remember, this is not a study on Saul. This is a study on Samuel. But, but, but instead of worried about what happened on that day, let's just be thankful for what happened on this day. Don't worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. You take care of today. Deal with today. Handle your today. And tomorrow will take care of itself. May we stand together, please. that we need to
really step up our efforts. Uh, we're not doing enough in the way of Christian education, particularly with regard to the information that we use in our Christian education programs. Uh, even before I became pastor of Shiloh, I was involved in the Christian education ministry of this church. I taught the Sunday school teachers uh, before they taught uh, their classes. And I never used the resources that were provided to me because they came from places that had a different perspective of the scripture than my own. And as far as I was concerned, a different perspective from the needed perspective within this congregation. Uh, every church is unique. This is particularly true with the African American Baptist Church. Every church is its own entity. And it's very important in the areas of Christian education. Remember, we probably put more time into the Christian education aspect of what we do than we do anything else. Uh, even when it comes to preaching on Sunday morning, uh, I only preach 20 minutes, whereas Sunday school class lasts 45 minutes to an hour every week. So we spend literally twice as much time in the Christian education uh, aspect than we do in the preaching mode of the church. So it's very important that we make the most of that time by making sure that what we present is theologically accurate and is relevant to the cultural experience that is unique to that congregation. Uh, church is not purely theological. Church is also cultural. Uh, and, 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 and because of the reality of that, it's important that we tailor and that we, we shape the message that we give in Christian education to meet the cultural needs as well as the theological needs of, of those people who are participating. It's another reason why uh, I, I have trouble with African-Americans who go to Caucasian-led churches. A Caucasian-led church can't tailor the gospel to meet your African-American cultural needs. They don't know about it. And what they do know, they know only from a surface level. And it's not necessarily that they're insensitive to it as it is that they are simply ignorant to it. And because they're ignorant to it, these are needs that are going unmet. And people are leaving uh, thinking that they have been fed when what they've really been given is popcorn. And you need meat. And meat can only come from an African-American experience. Mm -hmm.